Welcome to the fifth episode of Regulate Tech with me, Niklas Beer-Lumblad, and... And me, Richard Allen. Today's subject is the truth. We thought we would take something small and easy to discuss uh, in, in this week's episode. So uh, the news this week contained, among other things, um, an item that said that Facebook has decided to take action against uh, vaccine misinformation. How important do you think it is that, that platforms... Uh, more and more uh, take action on what is perceived to be misinformation. So, so I think it's really important to separate out the different kinds of misinformation. And, and this is why I think truth is a great title for this episode, because um, I think it's not about, you know, taking a particular position on on lying, uh, on whether everything that everybody says is accurate and correct all the time. Because I, I just don't think you know. In in in, in um, you know, we often talk about sort of things that, that are illegal offline should be illegal online. That's a very sort of co- common thing that people talk about. And and frankly, except for very exceptional cases, for example, around monetary fraud or defamation, it's generally not illegal in most societies to lie. <laughs> you can you can say what you think. And and that's not typically breaking the law. So so people can say what they think online, just as they can say what they think offline. But there are these very specific areas in which um, speech can be harmful. And actually, it's not always false speech. It's not necessary that it's false. But there are particular kinds of false speech that are harmful. Defamation is a classic one. In most countries, that's made illegal. Fraud, I promised to sell you something and it's not as as described. You told a lie about the product, that's illegal. And then in this case, the platforms are effectively rendering illegal another kind of false speech, which is false speech about um, vaccines. Uh, because in the particular context right now, arguably, that's in a sense a sort of kind of fraud that you're committing uh, on the public at large. So I think if we think of it in those terms, it's not it's not an absolute, you must always tell the truth, uh, you must never lie. It's not a position that says, you know, all misinformation is is necessarily actionable. But it is saying, within the scope of things that people say, there are some things which are both untrue and harmful, and we may want to take specific actions against specific kinds of speech. But let's look at the trend line because both you and I have have been around for long enough to know that that it the the way that this has developed over the last decade or so is really interesting to track because in the beginning of the decade, for example, no major platform would take action against Holocaust denial, uh, which is an obvious lie and a, a slight anyway it's, it's a destructive lie at that. Uh, but that has changed. Uh, most platforms now consider Holocaust denial something that they they will remove, and vaccine misinformation is being added to to things that are now being removed. And you have several other categories as well. What do you think about the long arc of of the platform moderation? Does it bend towards the truth, or is it still just going to be a set of categories? To your point, very specific categories that are carved out and, and moderated against. I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question because the, the there is um. I think as platforms have grown, there's been an expectation that they will take more responsibility for the things that happen over the platform. And again, the the sort of archetypal internet model was we are the mere carrier, the mere conduit, and we're not responsible for anything that happens as a result of the stuff that's carried over our service. And I think that's not proved to be sustainable as an argument, at least for large reputable internet platforms that you know have a significant place in our society and commerce there is an expectation that 
that they do care whether or not the content that they're carrying, which they didn't produce. I mean, they didn't, they didn't write the stuff. They didn't film the videos. They didn't, they didn't make the speech, but they are distributing it to other people. And so there is this expectation that they have a responsibility. So I think we're at a phase from, yes, version one, if you like, of the internet uh, speech model was, you know, go to the speaker. We are the mere conduit. If you've got a problem and somebody says something horrible, somebody said, you know, something like Holocaust denial, go to the Holocaust denier and and don't come to us. We're the mere conduit. And to a certain extent, the, the law provides some protections that kind of reflect that model still. But even if you are not strictly liable under the law, I think things moved on to people saying, well, you know, you're distributing that Holocaust denial content. You can't just put it all on the speaker. You as the platform also need to do something. And you're right, platforms have moved on and said, well, we we can't sustain a position where we know about the Holocaust denial and yet refuse to do anything about it. So we are going to intervene. And you're right, you talked about it as specific areas where they're now taking action. I think cumulatively, those specific actions do take us towards something which I mean, arguably is is about the truth, but I, I'm, perhaps a, a different framing would be that it's more mainstream or more media-like in terms of the, the, the environment we'll end up with. So where, whereas in that first free-for-all environment, you could say the craziest stuff. You could wave your Nazi flags, you could do your Holocaust denial, you could do all of this kind of crazy stuff. In in the environment today, you can still do some pretty crazy stuff, but you know the worst of the worst is being taken out. In the future, I think the mainstream platforms are, are going to have a, a narrow definition of what's permissible, and a lot of the crazy stuff is going to go. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We've talked about this before. It can still exist on the internet, but yeah, I don't yeah. think I don't think mainstream mm-hmm. platforms are going to be able to support the crazy stuff. It's kind of, it is death by a thousand cuts because it's going to happen slice by slice. But the trend does seem absolutely clear that the crazier stuff is not going to be welcome on mainstream platforms. One of the things that you've reminded us of often when we've discussed these different issues is that it's important to have a theory of the harm, right? To think about what the harm is. And I think it's it's interesting because in this case, there is a theory of the harm that that is not fully articulated. It's sometimes phrased in, in terms of, you know, you have a right to speech, but not a right to reach. And uh, you've heard a lot of different commenters commentators like like Barack Obama say we have lost our common uh, baseline of facts so the theory of harm here seems to be that if you allow for lies or misinformation the individual case is not what gets you it's the amount of lies over time the compound effect of misinformation that erodes the public sphere so that the theory of harm here is really a theory of harm to the public sphere and to our ability to to deliberate as a society. What do you think about that? I mean, I think there are t- two different things going on, actually, because um, there's one which is back to the specifics I keep talking about. So you can construct a, a very sort of precise theory of harm around something like vaccine anti-vaccination content. So you can say, you know, the default in a in a sort of reasonably uh, um, uh, sort of progressive and well-educated society would be that 85% of people will take up the COVID vaccine, for example. That might be your default position. 15% will never do it. 85% would do it. And then you can you can look at that and say, but the COVID misinformation, if it's repeated or the COVID vaccination misinformation, might take that down to 75%. 
we've lost 10% of vaccinated people, and then you can calculate how many more people will get serious illness and die because of that 10% gap. So you can you can kind of construct a model that takes you from you know, the misinformation to a very specific and calculated harm in society. Um, and that can happen in a number of different areas. I actually think around Holocaust denial, again, if remember, Facebook was very resistant to that for a long period of time and recently changed its policies. And I think it changed its policy because people were associating increases on uh, of attacks on Jewish people with that form of speech. Uh, and and there again, there is evidence that shows that I think there's been increasing anti-Semitism expressed in a number of different countries. <clears throat> and you can make that association. And so you create a sort of very specific rational case for acting because there is a real world harm and the speech seems to be closely associated with that real world harm. So that's one set of, or well, one kind of approach. The other approach just says, you know, lies are, uh, in some way, sort of fundamentally undermining for society, and so you just you know things must be truthful, not lies, almost as a moral case. Um, and that I think is really interesting because I think that's where a lot of people want platforms to go, uh, and really just to stand up for the truth as as a moral imperative, as as a preferred uh, moral uh, stance over lies which are seen as immoral, um, and that takes you much much more broadly actually and i think is is a much uh, more contestable proposition i think the first one which says a specific form of information misinformation and actually again i don't think it even needs necessarily to be false it is just you know there is an association with a particular kind of speech and a real world harm and we can make that association we can argue about how close it's associated but it's there and again on on the truthful side of things you might have you know, people pushing out information about uh, uh, one ethnic group having attacked another ethnic group in a situation where there is, you know, real conflict in that society. And and there actually may be some truth that an attack did occur, but the promotion of that information, you can say, or you can demonstrate that the more that information gets promoted, the more it winds up the other side and the more likely it is that people will die. So they say there were scenarios where you connect the speech to a harm. That I think we can deal with uh, the one that is really interesting for the public sphere is just you know this this notion that repeated telling of lies degrades the public sphere and 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 is a harm in and of itself but a much more inchoate incoherent harm than the kind of specific harms we've been talking about yeah no and 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 that theory sort of is not that hard to explicate because you can say that unless we have a common frame of reference if we if we do not agree on on a basic set of facts we are not going to be able to deliberate and you could argue that when anything goes uh, the result is that your your common framework breaks and I, I think it's interesting because the way that this is often framed um, in platform discussions is that platforms should not become the arbiters of truth right that's the a key phrase that I've uh, <laughs> I've heard several times and probably also spoken several times and and this idea is, is is clean and and easy to understand you shouldn't ask a private company to determine what's true and not true in a democracy but it begs the question of what platforms should be. Because if you're not the arbiters of truth, that's a negative de definition. How do you avoid becoming purveyors of lies if that's the alternative to, to being the arbiters of truth? Is there really a, a moral middle ground when it comes to, to these things? Or do you think increasingly that, that you have to, as a platform, accept that you're going to have a normative role 
on the public debate? I mean, I think the challenge is that for many of the things that we care most about, there isn't a single truth. <laughs> and so that's the, the real challenge. I mean, if we, if we, you know, look, and I've been very involved in politics, we look at the, the debate around Britain leaving the European Union. And, and there was a famous number that was thrown around. And it was, uh, the, the, if Britain left the European Union, it would save £350 million a week um, from uh, the, not having to pay money into the EU. And, and people looked at that and the statisticians and they said, well, actually, the figure is more like £250 million, um, because there are various discounts and rebates and things. At the same time, the Remain side, and to be candid, that the side I was on, would was, was sort of be arguing that you know leaving the EU will cost X amount of money, uh, because we're going to have reduced trade, and that's going to cost. So everyone is throwing these numbers around, and that's a really concrete scenario. Like, does does the platform intervene and say, "Well, you're allowed to say it's a hundred million pounds a week or two hundred million pounds a week, but not three hundred fifty million pounds a week," because you know these statisticians have said this. Actually, is, you know, those numbers in a sense represent represented people's view. If you were on the leave side you would make up the biggest number you possibly could. And if you're on the remain, you know, for, for uh, the, the savings you get by leaving, if you're on the remain side, you make up the biggest number you possibly can uh, for the what it's going to cost you to leave. And again, I don't feel a platform should be in the business of trying to decide between those different numbers. They get argued out in the public domain. And there's, there's so many areas like that where the stuff that we really care about, um, there are there are many truths <laughs> put it that way as in as in there's there's a sort of uh, a, a set of sort of underlying facts and then a whole lot of spin that gets put on top of those underlying facts um, that, that then becomes the the political argument that's being advanced and yes I can do, you know as a citizen I can go I wish these guys wouldn't exaggerate they shouldn't have used the 350 million figure um, but I, but again I'm not sure platforms should be in the business of of deciding. Uh, what kind of numbers and arguments and things can be put forward in a political context. Uh, and that's the area which I think is very high risk. And when they say we don't want to be arbiters of truth, I think that's what they really mean. They really mean mm-hmm. when something is contested, which, which actually is when people are most excited about it, We, you know, the contest is between the different parties. In that case, the contest is between the Leave campaign and the Remain campaign in the UK referendum. It's not between the Leave campaign and Facebook or the Remain campaign and Facebook as an actor in that debate. Um, so that, that's, I think, very specifically where, where we're saying don't be the arbiters of truth, and I support that. I don't, I don't think platforms should be actors with their own viewpoint in political debates that are perfectly capable of playing out on their own uh, across all of the media as well as on social media. So you you mean I agree with that. I think that's the right way to frame it to say that there are areas like that where where it would be directly harmful and I think lots of people will find it offensive if platforms stepped in. But but let me uh, let me sort of suggest another way of framing this. These are areas where you can where where, where people can reasonably disagree. Holocaust denial, there's no reasonable disagreement. There's no reasonable disagreement on QAnon conspiracy theory. Shouldn't you just be able to have a very simple test that says, is there reasonable disagreement on this this issue? And and then then sort of use that as a watershed uh, criterion to say, you cannot, there's no reasonable disagreement on whether or not the QAnon conspiracy is true, Holocaust denial is true, etc. Are there... 
are you are is the platform discussion sort of overcomplicating this by pointing to a set of reasonable disagreements and taking those reasonable disagreements as grounds for excluding statements that very clearly seem to be false yeah, that, i think and this is again you know exactly why i i get so passionate about being really precise and specific because there are all these i mean one of the worst arguments ever in politics is it's often the slippery slope argument you know if we uh if if we ban holocaust denial then we're going to end up having to you know ban discussion of other historical events where there is a genuine dispute and debate no <laughs> you can you can you can set a limit and a threshold exactly as you say and you can say these things are outside the limit and the threshold and and a little bit of it is it, you know it, um, in criminal justice, you kind of have these ideas of, of guilty beyond reasonable doubt or guilty on the balance of probabilities. You know, you, you set different thresholds for when you're going to say that somebody is guilty. Guilty beyond reasonable doubt means you have no serious question that that individual is guilty of a particular offence. And I think with something, some some mistruths, you can you can apply that standard. So you can say Holocaust denial. There is no reasonable doubt. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, that one side of the argument, if you can put it that way, is correct. Uh, this thing happened and the people on the other side of it are wrong. Um, beyond reasonable doubt, they are wrong and therefore we have a substantive case of removing it. QAnon might be the same. And I think in practice, that's where the platforms have gone. I mean, the stuff that they are now removing is the beyond reasonable doubt uh, uh, stuff where where you know there is very clearly one side that is right and one side that is wrong uh, to that sort of standard. I think where it gets more iffy in the scenario I described previously around the you know, the cost savings from the EU, that was much more sort of balance of probabilities argument where it's like 50-50, who's right, who's wrong, or much closer. And even if it's like 60 or 70, you know, 60-40, 70-30, a platform may say, well, you know, even, even if, you know, these guys have exaggerated and it looks pretty wrong, it's kind of not beyond reasonable doubt that the other side have got an arguable case. And I think one of the things we might, um, helpfully do is get this much more out into the public domain, this sort of form of of uh, rationalization for your decision making. Um, so, so we don't end up with a slippery slope argument. Well, you banned Holocaust denial, therefore you must ban the 350 million claim in the EU referendum debate because you're against untruths. Well, no, one is an untruth that is absolutely clear. The other is an untruth, which is debatable. And so it doesn't follow that because you ban one, you ban the other. Um, so I think, yeah, again, being very explicit about the kind of thresholds that are being applied would be helpful. Um, interesting, yeah, this is what newspapers do. I mean, they do this all the time. So when newspapers say they publish, you know, true content, and I think we can take them at face value, um, other people will contest that and say, oh, you know, the, you know this newspaper is terribly biased, particularly the more tabloidy ones. But they have a legal department and they have people who check stuff and they will publish it when they they believe it meets a, a, a sufficient threshold of truthfulness. I mean, new, newspaper doesn't you know, can't rely on 100% truthfulness, but they have a sufficient threshold, which is, for example, that they have two separate sources corroborating the story. You know, two separate so- sources corroborating a story is not guaranteed to be true, but they've decided that's sufficient. So again, talking about um, and, and this is <laughs> some people will contest this, but not talking about t- t- truth in terms of absolutes. It's not 100% true or 100% false, but but talking about the the point at which you think something is sufficiently true for you to act on it, I think is is uh, helpful. And then being very open and explicit about how you're making those decisions. 
One way of doing this, of course, is to instead talk uh, of talking about truth, uh, talking about information quality, saying that this information is corroborated, it's been backed up by research, there is an historical record, etc. Do you think we'll get to a point where we can meaningfully index information quality and have that be an, a criterion that just below a certain threshold, we are not going to uh, disseminate that content or uh, we're simply just going to mark it as hearsay or speculation or something like that i mean i find that attractive and i suspect we both do because we're we're more on the the sort of uh nerdy end of things but yeah to talk about information quality um is more feels more technical than than truth and falsehood which which sort of carries this moral sense with it and i don't think these are in they're not moral decisions in that sense they're not or we shouldn't be thinking of them primarily as moral decisions uh that the liar is immoral the truth teller is the is a saint we should be we should be much more candid that it's about uh, um i mean you know good people can can get things wrong and bad people can get things right so it is about understanding how right or wrong or how likely something is to be right or wrong that i think is most useful rather necessarily you know associating a particular set of moral values with that rightness or wrongness um and so to, to give you, you know, another example i got uh, very involved in actually as a elected representative you know mobile phone cell towers um people get very exercised and say mobile phone cell towers are causing cancer and all sorts of things and when you dig into it you, you can see that way beyond you know reasonable doubt mobile f- cell towers do not cause cancer um they they are as safe as anything can be but you can't say you know it's 100% uh, not um you, you can never say 100% you can say 99.9999 recurring um but the critical thing for someone who comes across that debate, if that debate is playing out online, is to understand the information quality of each side of the argument. So if on the one side you have, you know, experts in non-ionizing radiation who have carried out peer-reviewed studies into the effect of mobile phone uh, signal on the brain, that that carries a particular sort of quality label, which I think is at the very top end of the scale. If on the other side, you have somebody who said, you know, in my village, somebody got cancer and we have a mobile phone mast. I mean, it's interesting, but but the level of quality in terms of the contribution to the debate is just not at the same level. Um, and so all of those pieces of information should be in the debate. You don't necessarily want to shut them out. But for the person who's involved, understanding you know, where they come from, uh, what kind of weight to place on them, I think is the most important thing. And we can, again, read that across to lots of other debates and understanding uh, quality is critical um, and, and maybe more helpful than saying, you know, 100% right, 100% wrong. It's saying, well, you, you can feel, you know, 99.9 recurring percent uh, satisfied that the mobile phone masks are okay because of the weight of the quality of the information on that side of the argument versus the weight of the quality of the information on the other side of the argument. Um, and that lets you form an informed view. And it essentially is applying the scientific method, not saying that anything is 100% right or wrong, but saying the, the overwhelming evidence suggests that there is uh, no cancer to be had from mobile cell towers. Another issue where, where this is going to become more and more interesting, I think, is the issue of climate change. Um, where there is the debate, an open debate between climate change deniers and people who are very clear about the fact that we have anthropogenic climate change. It's sort of a hot button issue. There's a lot of debate. Science is solidly on the side of anthropogenic climate change. But at some point, it also becomes really interesting to ask not about truth or lies, but to ask about doubt. So 
are you allowed to doubt things? Because that's the pernicious sort of little crack that you open up in this notion of a common frame of reference, where you say, well, for climate change, for example, you could say, well, look, these are really complex models. I'm not sure that we're able to accurately model the climate in a way that is meaningful. This is what Freeman Dyson said, and it immediately got him branded as a climate denier. And, and that is that doubt seemed to me to be an interesting intersection between truth and falsity. Are you allowed to doubt anything? Should doubt be that cheap? How do we think about that? Because that's another part of the scientific method, right? Uh, so how do we... Yeah, how do you- that's exactly what I was thinking. And, and, and again, um, you know, let's look at the, the vaccination situation. You know, it is possible... That some of the vaccines that are being produced will later turn out to have serious negative side effects. And the way that we discover that is people do doubt their their safety and ask questions, and they test those questions. And if there is a problem, we want them to find that early. We want them to doubt. Uh, and um, and so, so it is like, as you say, part of the scientific method, it's essential that people are able to doubt things. But are we able to, to sort of hold both things in our minds at the same time? One, uh, a commitment to getting on and getting vaccinated because the current evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of it being a good thing, at the same time as entertaining reasonable doubts and, and the possibility that someone may, you know, later find out to be a, to be a problem. I, I, I've always had a an issue around this notion of the precautionary principle, which, again, it means lots of things, different things to different people. But, you know, people will justify it not to do anything at all. The precautionary principle is until you can prove the vaccine is 100% safe, we shouldn't take it. Well, no, <laughs> you know, uh, um, I'm not... It's logically not. impossible to do that. You yeah. can't prove that something is 100%. That, that sort of any anyone who sort of happened to accidentally have scientific theory inflicted on them. <laughs> exactly. So, so I think the answer is, and again, you've heard this in the argument, it sort of gets cited, I had it with the cell towers. Don't put a cell tower, your precautionary principle says no cell towers uh, in my neighborhood until you've, you know, proved they're safe. Well, no. Um, uh, it does say do all the sensible things, get your non-ionizing radiation experts to look at it and get your vaccination and your epidemiological experts to look at a vaccine, you know, and then if it's safe enough, go ahead. And at the same time, entertain the doubts, but don't let the doubts undermine the action that you're taking today. And that is hard. I mean, we should we should be honest, that is hard um, for people to do. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a stretch, but, but I, there is no alternative. Like, that is the way these things have to work, that we have to both proceed on the best information we have and doubt enough to keep testing that the information we have is the right information and make sure that we spot any uh, unanticipated consequences of the course of action we've taken. And again, I mean, there's no technical fix here. The the fix is an educated citizenry. The people who are educated in thinking about these things in a way that allows them to see that doubt is reasonable, but not something that should uh, adversely affect their uh, willingness to get vaccinated, for yeah. example. But but you could imagine, I mean, if we, if we sort of extrapolate from the situation we are today, you could imagine that there are fields where there will be people who essentially say, well, you know, doubt in this particular case is going to be so corrosive to what we're trying to accomplish, and we cannot control the level of doubt or the effects of doubt. So actually, doubt is harmful. There's a theory of harm around doubt. At that point, we we enter interesting territory because then we we come back to the notion that platforms should be engaged in social engineering. And in this case, we we 
we've seen this social engineering before. It can be traced back to Greek philosophy where Plato speaks of the noble lie, the noble lie that underlies the Republic so that everyone uh, complies with, in this case, a a very unfair and unequal hierarchy that he put in place in the Republic. So how do platforms get away from that? Because that seems to be a natural next step if you feel that the common frame of reference is being eroded by the mere existence of doubt. Yeah, and and I think that's going to be um one of the hardest questions i mean i mean when i think about um a lot of doubt i think it's often an ex- an expression of something else uh so again coming back to my mobile uh, phone mast example a lot of the people who were expressing doubt around the around those masks i felt were primarily concerned with the fact that someone was going to gr- build a great big bit of infrastructure next to their house so in a sense it was not i mean it wasn't about the radiation at all it was about you know, the classic thing that nobody wants uh, a great big sort of metal tower built in their back garden. Um, and so, and again, I think similarly, in a lot of these other debates, when we talk about climate change, there's quite a lot of like, I don't want to change my lifestyle. I want to go on holiday without feeling guilty. And so I'm going to question the foundation of climate change, not necessarily as a sort of purely intellectual exercise, but as a way of making me feel better about what I want to do. And and you know, again, there's lots of emotion uh, and lots of personal uh, issues that we bring to to these questions that often express themselves th- through a form of doubt. Uh, in the U.S. election, and commentators have talked about this, but you know, p- people casting doubt on the election not because they've necessarily done the analysis of how voting machines were used in Georgia, um, but what they're really saying is, you know, I feel threatened. Uh, for whatever reason, by the fact that my guy has lost. Um, And because I feel threatened by the fact that my guy has lost, uh, the way I'm going to express that is to sign up to all these doubts about the voting process. Having never, ever been interested in the voting process ever before, having no knowledge of it, but you offer me that, and I'm going to become the biggest advocate for the fact that X voting system manufacturer was owned by the Cubans or whatever. Um, you know, and, and then if, if you talk to that person, you talk to them about trying to prove that the voting system was not owned by the Cubans. Um, I'm deliberately using a different country so I don't get into the, the awful kind of uh, defamation territory here because there are ongoing cases. But you, you know, if you, if you debate on the, on the substance of it, you're not really debating the issue that's the issue for them. And similarly, for the person who you know, wants to go on their foreign holidays, to, to go and talk to them about CO2 levels in the atmosphere is kind of not the point. Uh, you're never going to get through. Um, you need to have a debate about um, how they feel about going on foreign holidays, or in the case of the US elections, you'd have a debate about how that person feels about the outcome of the election. Um, you're never going to answer their concerns by talking about the mechanics of voting and trying to prove it was all correct. So this is this, I think, is like the real challenge out there, which is, um, you know, can platforms, uh, if you, if you wanted them to fix this thing, I don't think they fix it by either throwing the facts at the doubter. Because the doubters expressing a view which reflects a whole bunch of other things in their lives, which perhaps you know only tangentially related to the substance of the issue we're talking about, um, so they're not necessarily going to get there by throwing the facts at the person. They're not necessarily going to change minds by just deleting the stuff. Um, you know, deleting the stuff. The the climate change denier. Uh, who's really motivated by foreign holidays, whose stuff gets deleted, it is is not going to feel that anything's changed. They're just kind of going to feel, you see, it's even more of a conspiracy and a cover-up. 
you do get there by getting them into some deliberative space where they're able to discuss uh, the issue. And I'm not sure, we've talked about this again before, how how much we can expect a platform to steer that person into deliberative space where they talk about the issue as a whole, where you have a conversation about travel, the future of travel, climate, et cetera, et cetera, and you sort of discuss that with them, where you have a, in the case of the mobile phone mast, where you have the conversation about planning law and how it works and how you've got to put essential infrastructure somewhere and how the decisions are made and make that person feel better. Um, in the context of the elections, the, the discussion around, you know, uh, how democracy works and the fact that sometimes your guy loses and, and how we handle that. You know, all of these are the, are the sort of d- deliberations that need to take place. And I think we're sort of still, in many cases, stuck at the level of, well, you've expressed a doubt uh, or you've expressed, you know, uh, wrong or misinformation we're either going to throw the right information at you in the assumption that will change your mind, or we're just going to delete it altogether in the assumption that that may help you change your mind. Um, and I'm not sure either of those is going to work. And and it goes to the heart of, of something that we've come back to several times before, and that is that there's an insufficient understanding of human nature underpinning a lot of the different tech policy problems that we're looking at right now. If you look at, for example, truth, we never evolved to seek truth. We evolved to, I mean, Julia Galef, who is a brilliant author and a cognitive scientist, has written about this, and she suggests that we have two minds. We have a scout mind that looks for novelty, where we're looking for new things, and we want to sort of discover new things, however crazy they may seem, and we we have a soldier mind that looks for cohesion, social cohesion. So the two kinds of truths that we have evolved to, to deal with is one in which we just seek what's new, which means it's ultimately doubt and it's exploratory. And the other is we seek to believe what others believe that we want to ha- belong to the in-group with. And so if that is your starting point, if you start from sort of an evolutionary psychology starting point, then in fact, just erasing misinformation strengthens the soldier mind and quashes the scout mind and will just react, you know, create a very adverse reaction. So you're worsening the problem because people will then go more into their clusters. By fighting misinformation, you create the filter bubbles you thought you were going to dissolve. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I again, I'll come back to one of my repeated themes, which is if you get people around the table and first of all, agree on what it is you're trying to achieve <laughs> from that uh you may then come to a strategy to achieve that and so again in this in this sort of context of misinformation what you're not trying to achieve i think is the removal of the content and the, and there's too much of that it's too much of you know i'm the government or the civil society critic and i'm saying to the platforms this content is on your platform as long as you don't get rid of it, you're evil. And I'm just telling you, you've got to get rid of it. And then the platform's sort of fighting back going, why are you telling me to do that? Actually, you needed the platform and the civil society experts and the government to sit down around the table and say, what, what are we trying to achieve? Um, what we're trying to achieve is increased take up of the vaccination, for example. Okay, now we've decided what we're trying to achieve as a common goal. And the goal is not the removal of the misinformation. The goal is the take up of the vaccination. Let's work back from that. Okay, if we remove this misinformation, does it make it more or less likely that people will take the vaccine? Well, let's look at the best research and then let's look at cognitive scientists and behavioral scientists. And then let's look at the research that people have done on what happens when you remove misinformation, whether it it changes people's minds or not. Let's look at the research that tells us what happens when you present people with the alternative viewpoint. 
Let's look at what happens when you color all of the good information green and all of the bad information red. I mean, there's a hundred different ways that you could approach this problem. But sit around the table together, agree the common objective, look at all the different ways you could address it, and then agree a common strategy that says, right, shared objective, uh, assuming there is one, and sometimes there won't be. Um, If the shared objective or the objective of the government is we want you to suppress the the misinformation that's coming from the political opposition. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> the Russian government today would, you know, they were sitting at the table, they would say, the important thing is to suppress all that misinformation that comes from this Alexei Navalny guy. Well, probably not going to have a objective there. But on other areas, um, certainly vaccination, climate change may be more contentious. There'll be some governments who who don't share a common objective necessarily with platforms around that. Um, but the areas where you do have a common objective, agree that, then get the best possible information about the different strategies you could approach and then agree on a common strategy. And I say, I think the mistake that we make so often is that the goal is the removal of the misinformation. It isn't. It's something else that we think the, the either removal or different treatment of misinformation will help us achieve. Surprisingly, often feels as if technology policy is uh, a set of shallow solutions to what are really deep uh, and often psychological or behavioral problems, where the use of the technology is not in focus, but merely sort of what the technology currently contains or the misinformation online. But is there a remedy for this to sort of move technology policy away from what is largely uh, symbolic action to actually have a conversation about that deeper thing you point to, what would we want to achieve? Do you see signs of this happening or do you think that it's still, you know, very tempting for for decision makers to seek the quick fix, to seek the technical fix, to put the filter on, to use the AI, to sort of just generally make sure that that the technology is just clutch after clutch, uh, not doing anything that you're upset about? I mean, I think part of, part of the so historical problem is you, you have two complex worlds that don't understand each other and don't necessarily respect each other. And so, again, use the, the sort of cliches on on the tech side. You you've got people who are they've got a whole whole language. I mean, languages. Uh, they talk differently. They act differently um, from politicians, and and they often you know uh, feel that they are superior. Um, let's you know be entirely candid that you know that they've come up with a brilliant technical way of fixing something. And the politicians are kind of dumb and irrational over there, and they they just don't get it. They don't understand how the world works. And then on the political side, you have politicians who, again, to be candid, many of them genuinely don't understand how the technology works. That that can be quite threatening. Um, They feel threatened and undermined by these arrogant technologists, and they want to take them down a peg or two. And that's uh, without really understanding what it is that they're necessarily that they're asking for. And that's just not a great dynamic for... Um, finding solutions where where neither side really respects each other. Um, um, they're not sort of working along the same path. I think that is shifting now um, to a certain extent. And I think this is, again, where I see hope in some of the regulatory structures that might come forward. So I think a good regulatory structure, above all, would force these two communities. They're both legitimate. Um, you know, again, technologists do understand the technology better. They they genuinely can, I think, come up with better solutions if they're so minded than many of the solutions that the politicians would come up with. But politicians have legitimacy and mandate. They represent the people in their country. 
they have an authority that technology companies don't have. And so I think if you can create a scenario where you bring those two forces together and create some mutual respect, and I think the best way to do that that I've seen in my experience has been when it's been very concrete. And when, when you've looked at, you know, you, you park your allegiances at the door and you look at a problem together, and, and you may have had the same experience of being in some of the discussions, for example, around counterterrorism. When, yeah. you know, when you're in the middle of attacks on your societies and you feel it both as a citizen and a technologist, and um, you go into a room with the politicians and you say, let's just put everything to one side and say, how do we together uh, come up with solutions to deal with a real problem, which is people organizing or inciting terrorist attacks through the platforms, get some great solutions. So um, that can really work. And I, I've seen it in child safety as well, where people come together and, and work together. So I think to the extent that a regulatory solution forces that conversation, I think that's extremely helpful. Back to the subject of our, our, our sort of work today and truth, I actually think this is going to be though one of the hardest areas. And I think the reason it's going to be hard is because it affects a vital interest of the political side of this equation. So if we talk about things like terrorism and child abuse, in most cases there won't be any any sort of contention between the parties. Um, whether you're a party of the left or the right, you, you dislike child abuse, you dislike terrorism, you're, you're, there's a sort of unified view. And if you're on the technology side of things, it doesn't matter which party the politician is coming from, they're going to be asking you for similar things. Once you get into some of this sort of truth, mistruth area, again, let's be really candid. There are some administrations of some parties, typically on the right, who, who for example, are fighting against the notion that there's man-made climate change. And then there'll be other parties, either on the left or the green persuasion, for whom this is the number one priority. So you can imagine there as a platform, you could be sitting down with a government in one country and they're saying, you know, this is what we absolutely need you to do. You've got to deal with this climate change misinfo across the border. And there's somebody saying, what the hell are you doing? Um, suppressing people who are expressing reasonable doubts uh, about climate change. And, and the people you may be suppressing might include actual ministers within the government or spokespeople of the government. So, so th- as I say, I think there's a spectrum from relatively easy in terms of uh, there being no political divide through to issues that are the heart of political debates in different countries. And and uh, the misinformation truth debate is often at that hardest end where it's an issue that is in, highly contentious and where the politicians see the platform policy as actually instrumental in whether or not they get elected. And nothing could be more existential for a politician. I, and... and- it's interesting that you bring up the, the, for example, the Global Internet Forum to counter terrorism and the way that tech companies work together with governments in that particular issue in order to get to a common result. Because if you make the accusation that tech policy is often shallow, you can say that the reaction from tech companies sometimes is, is overly reactive and not necessarily trying to address the problem. You could argue that tech companies have a very legitimate and interesting problem in figuring out how we establish a common baseline of facts. That's that's a problem that can be approached with technology. But more importantly, and this is also the case for, for the uh, terrorism example, with institutions. Because one of the most interesting things about the, the examples that you mentioned is that in both of those cases, child safety and the case of uh, counterterrorism, the result of the collaboration was an externalization of the issue to a third body, to a forum or to you know the uh, Internet Watch Foundation or NICMEC, 
what you've done in those cases is that you've built new institutions. And if you think about something like the truth, it doesn't really belong within politics, because as Hannah Arendt pointed out, politics and truth have always been uneasy bedfellows, right? Uh, And I think one of the other things that is really interesting is that it doesn't belong in a private company. It doesn't belong in a private enterprise, which suggests to me that there could be an institutional answer here as well. And what comes to mind, of course, is the Wikipedia that has managed as a kind of institution to negotiate truth on a number of different issues. And it's not perfect. There are editing wars and there are all kinds of things. And you can argue that over time, there is an entropy setting in, uh, will make it very hard for the Wikipedia to survive the next 20 years. But there is something there about the externalization of this issue into an institution as a more durable solution to it than than simply trying to sort of smash each other over the head with either pure legislation or or uh, technical fixes. What do you think about that? I mean, I think many people in the, the media, the classic media, would say that's exactly what they exist to do. They exist to be um, the, the truth carriers within society or the truth definers and they um, part of their professionalism is uh, to, to be able to do that um i, I mean I, th- I think there's certainly a lot we could do as we discussed earlier around around information quality there's a lot we could do to help people understand why a piece of information is being presented the way it is and and the the robustness of it and you're right wikipedia is a good example that you know that the articles are reasonably robust because you know how the sausage is made. You know what's gone into it. Uh, it's very transparent about what's gone into it. There's a very explicit process, actually a sort of more explicit process than there is, for example, for much of the media editing where you, you simply have take it on trust that the journalists are checking multiple sources, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you, um, you assume that. Wikipedia has sort of made it explicit that, that that's happening. So I think there's a lot we can go to in that. But I think we should also be really candid and that many of the things that people most care about in this debate are are never, I mean, they're not going to be answered by saying, here's a single truth and, and, you know, we can run with it. And an example I've used before, which I I find fascinating is um, you, you can bring things, some of the most important things to you in your life you've brought into being by talking about them, they don't depend on an, a scientific underpinning. And the example I'd use is saint's bones, which I've say that that if you um, you know live in a particular community in uh, in a country where this is important, particularly sort of Catholic countries, uh, one of the most important things in your community life can be the fact that you have a relic that there's a bone of a saint that's in the local cathedral and forms a really important part of the social life of the city. Now that is a bone of a saint because everyone believes it's a bone of a saint and to send somebody in to do radiocarbon dating or whatever and try and prove that it's not is kind of neither here nor there. That's not really, you know, relevant to, to, uh, why that is, uh, important. So it is a fact as far as everybody in the community believes that that is the bone of St. X because they all believe it. And I use that analogy because it's, I think it's similar with a lot of the things that we have in politics, you know, uh, and this is the real challenge. It is a fact for a lot of people on the right of politics in the United States that the election was stolen. And that has become established in this, you know, and will be established over time. Uh, and, and simply presenting some other information is not going to make it feel like less of a fact. Um, so the Wikipedia entry that tells you exactly what happened in the US election is great. It's really important that it's there. Um, but it's not probably going to address the concern that people have, which is 
you know, a large number of believers, let's use that language, believers who have faith in the, the fact that the election was stolen. Um, so how do we deal with that, I think, is, the, is the, the challenge that people are putting out there. The Wikipedia entry is part of it. Uh, the common foundation of facts is part of it, but it's almost, when you talk about it, it's almost more aspirational. It's not, it's not there's a common basis of facts. It's, it's that there's a common basis of facts, and everybody believes in those facts as opposed to believing in something else. Um, and now we're in a territory of belief, which, which I say is much more complex to address than the, the territory of I don't know, rational scientific proof. You know, you, you say A, I say B. If I've got more evidence for B, you stop saying A and you start saying B. Like that's, that's not how this stuff is working in most of the areas that people most care about. And I think a sort of corollary to that is that, of course, we also need to talk about long truths. So what happens with truth over time is really interesting, right? One of the reasons Holocaust denial is so caustic is that over time, if you just accrue with denial of an historical event, that historical event erodes and the, the record of it erodes. If you go forward five, six, seven generations, it becomes harder and harder for future generations to suss out what actually happened. So the institution does matter and the institution does preserve truth over time. But it's sometimes going to be very hard to establish that institution. I, you know, the, the, it's interesting with saints' bones. I read somewhere that some of the more prominent saints uh, seem to have had around eight hundred fingers. Uh, if every single bone is actually a saint's bone, which is, which is to your point. Uh, um, exactly uh, right. It's not a question of fact. It's a question of belief. Yeah. But ultimately, at some point. We need those facts in order to be able to deliberate as a society, and we need that common baseline of, of uh, facts to to make political decisions. So I guess that the the real question is if if over time we can evolve an institution that will at least give us back a little bit more of that than we have right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we. So I, uh, let's let's um, pull it all together. I think we need both facts and belief. So, so the facts on their own are not going to solve many of the issues that we're worried about. Um, so again, you know, putting the facts out there about the COVID vaccination is is not necessarily going to, to shift the dial on the people who believe uh, the vaccinations are wrong for whatever reason they believe that. We need it. So it's a baseline. You've, you've got to have them. So don't give up on the facts. <laughs> we don't want to give up on it. We want to create them. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that that's, that's the end of the story uh, or even perhaps the main event. I mean, the facts may turn out to be the easy bit and the hard bit is the belief piece. And how do we shift beliefs that people have? Well, we shift beliefs. That's a curious framing anyway. How, do, how does, if, um, if uh, society or the, those who are, you know, uh, dominant in society have decided their belief needs to be shifted, how do they shift that? I mean, we're almost sort of in that space. Um, your, your Holocaust denial example, I think, is really interesting because, again, one of the things about belief is people believe things they want to believe. And, and we, again, we need to recognize that. And so I think you're right that, um, you know, post-war in Germany, I think most people in Germany would have wanted to believe that the Holocaust wasn't as bad as it was. That would have been their natural instinct. And so the institutions of the German state took extraordinary efforts to force people not to believe the thing they wanted to believe, but to understand what the truth was. So it's a fascinating examiner. And I, again, I talked to people in Germany, the extent to which, you know, the education system, the institutions of the state, 
um, um, really took very dramatic steps to force people to confront that. Um, uh, this is be highly political, but it's we're having a sort of debate in the UK at the moment about our role in empire and the fact mm. that we never had. And I'm very sympathetic to this argument. We we've never had that. It's much easier for us to believe that um, you know India benefited hugely from the Brits being there, and we weren't you know, stealing everything from them. We were giving them things like religion and smallpox and all those fun stuff so so there's this sort of view that you know uh, we've not confronted it because you take it is human to take the, the path of least resistance and the thing that makes you feel better about yourself so, so when you're confronting anything um historical you will want to believe the gilded version of the history unless an institution forces you to believe the hard version i actually think there's a lot of this in climate change as well you know if you believe in climate man-made climate change you're setting yourself up for a harder path than if you believe that it's not really happening and you can just carry on as you are today so the real challenge in many cases is how does one get people to to believe the hard thing when their default position is to go with believing the easy thing the easy thing is to believe you was robbed in an election you really want it you're you're the top dogs, but the other side cheated. That's that's a lot easier than believing the hard thing, which is you were rejected. That most of your fellow citizens don't agree with you. Um, and if you flip that around, the hard thing with Brexit and Donald Trump elections was for people to believe that most of their fellow citizens, certainly in the case of Brexit, a majority of their fellow citizens believe that. In the case of Donald Trump, citizens in the right places for their electoral system believe that. But you know, it is hard to believe. Uh, some things over other things. And that, I think, is a really important, again, part of the debate that we often miss. Um, If we're not thinking about what motivates people to believe particular scenarios and we're simply focused on whether or not we can prove that they're true or false, then in many cases we'll sort of miss uh, the main event. It's true. Well, I think that wraps it up very nicely. Thank you so much. So um, this podcast can be found on your website at regulate.tech. And thank you everyone for listening. Keep your comments coming and ideas or suggestions are always welcome. And we will be back next week. Thank you so much. 